Hey, I'm so glad to be with you today. Jill and I have been out uh, for a couple weeks on uh, vacation. And uh, while we were on vacation, um, many of you know this, but uh, Jill's mother passed away. And um, it's, it's in a moment like that that uh, tries your faith. Um, it's in a moment like that you kind of get to bedrock of what's important. And uh, we were so touched um, by this church's outflow of love towards our family. Uh, your generosity, your notes, um, your kindness, your visits. Many of you made it to the visitation on Monday night of last week and then to the service on Tuesday. And um, we have rarely felt the love of this church as much as we have felt it in the last week. And um, we have some incredible food at our house. You guys have really, really taken care of us. And I just wanted to, before we get started on anything else, say thank you for being the church. Uh, for being our church family, for loving us, for loving uh, my wife especially, and, and my kids and myself. And um, while we were at the service, uh, I was reminded of a couple things that I really appreciated about my, about my mother-in-law. Uh, her name was Sandy. And uh, some of the things that were special and important to her that found its way into her daughter, um, my wife. And um, I thought, for those of you that... Um, know us well, and for those of you that want to know what your pastor's family's like just a little bit, that you would enjoy watching just a moment of my wife's kind of celebration of uh, her mother. And so what I have for you is a rather grainy video clip um, from Tuesday's um, service where Jill talks about three things that uh, were important to her mother that are important to her and have made its way into our family as well. And uh, she starts by giving three points because she's a pastor's wife. Uh, that's how that works. And uh, that's what she said. And uh, at first she talks about how her mother loved to laugh. And, um, and man, that, that was true. And Jill uh, certainly carries that gene into our family. But then she talks about two things that I think might touch your heart and actually speak to one of the reasons why I love uh, this church. So guys, if you have that video clip, go ahead and watch if you don't mind. Um, my second point is that mom loved the local church. We grew up going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, revivals. A church was just a given. It was a part of our lives. And I truly, this weekend, I was thinking I'd never heard her complain about going to church. That's just, that's, that's what we did. I think she went because she knew and believed that the local church really has the ability to help people, to help people in their time of need. And what she knew about that, I know firsthand to be true. I mean, just last night, from the benefit of mom taking us to church and church being a part of our lives, now church is a part of my life. And someone from my church handed me a, a gift last night with a note that said, and a nice blanket with a note that just said, you know, I prayed over this blanket and I'm praying for you. And when you use this blanket, I hope you have happy thoughts about your mom. And that was just, for me, the, the power of community and the church and, and the power of that. I have countless memories of my mom in similar ways, not necessarily taking a blanket to a funeral, but just touching people in their time of need and taking them meals. I, I probably went to the hospital more than any kid I know visiting people. And funerals was like, I don't know, mom played the piano and sang. And so I had been to a lot of funerals when I was a kid just because that's part of church life and that's, that's what we did. Um, in recent years, I recall her calling me to say, hey, do your boys have any coats they're not wearing? Because there's a family at our church that could really use it. So can I come to your house and pick them up and, and take them to them? I think it's no surprise that they were on their way to church when the incident happened last week. 
And my third point about mom is that she truly did love the Lord. Um, whether she was talking to a waiter at a restaurant or some other patient in a doctor's office or just someone in line at the grocery store, she would find up a reason, find a reason to talk about the Lord, ask them where they went to church, tell them about her church and how much she loved it and that they would love it too. She really believed that when this life was over, that she would spend eternity with the Lord. She really believed that. She believed that we would see her again. She believed that God had a plan for our lives if we ask for direction. She used every birthday card, and anniversary card to tell you that. And in fact, my son Connor's birthday was going to happen during the trip. And so the night before we left, we met at a restaurant. She had a card for him. And it's a verse right out of Proverbs. It says, Connor, we love you very much. We're proud of you and wish you a happy 20th birthday. We're proud to be your grandparents. May God bless your life always. Stay true to him and in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. So on a birthday card right out of Proverbs, mom's letting people know what's important to her and letting them know that she really believed it. So in closing, mom was happy. She loved to laugh. She loved her family. She loved my dad deeply. She loved her church, and she loved the Lord. My kids know, I say it all the time, I have two goals for them. I want them to be happy, and not in like a happy-go-lucky kind of way, but in a deep internal happiness that we believe in our family only comes from a relationship with God. And I want them, the second thing, so be happy, number one. Number two, no matter where life takes you, be involved in your local church. And I would say that as a pastor's wife, but I really mean it because I believe there's nothing like the community that other believers that are going in the same direction as you can give you. And in thinking about these two that I've said for years, I think both of them came right from my mom because she was happy because she had that deep peace and she loved the local church. So we wanted to say thank you um, very tangibly, and I wanted you to uh, hear my wife's heart. Um, as you might imagine, it's kind of hard to talk, but from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Um, thank you for loving us, and thank you for loving our family, and, and for being the church. And if you're a guest, I just wanted to tell you something. Uh, we're not a perfect church, um, but we're a good church, and uh, we do church well around here. And if you're looking for a church home, um, we don't believe it's an accident that you're here. And in fact, I have um, Pastor Melissa up here. I didn't mean to make you cry as well. I know. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, um, but Pastor Melissa leads our adult ministries. And uh, thank you personally, by the way, for your love on my family. Um, but we're up here really to talk right now about a special program that you lead. Would you tell everybody a little bit about this? Because it actually has a lot to do with the message series we're launching today. It does. It's perfect timing. So we are um, just a few weeks away from launching our third semester of freedom. I know you've heard about it a lot. I know you probably say, wow, she's always talking about that freedom thing. But I can tell you in 15 years of ministry, this is in my top two things I've ever done. Um, freedom is a uh, curriculum that goes for 12 weeks. We do it here at Four Corners on Tuesday nights from 6 to 8. Um, it's a Bible study. Um, it fully immerses you into the Word of God in a way that maybe you haven't before. Um, and we've seen amazing impact uh, come from it. So it's 12-week Bible study happens here on Tuesdays, and it's followed up by um, a retreat in Alabama. 
uh, which we've had over 50% of the people who have gone through Freedoms. We've had over 100 go through Freedom, over 50 go to the conference, and uh, it is, uh, it's a game changer. So when I hear 12 weeks and then maybe a conference at the back end, it seems very complicated. It's not. So break it down to me. If somebody says, I want to do Freedom, what does it mean? So if you want to do Freedom, you show up here on a Tuesday night at 6 o'clock, 5.45ish. You have some dinner with your friends. Uh, we have some amazing times of worship, uh, very intimate it's in the student auditorium, and uh, so we worship together, and then the majority of the time we're in small groups talking through the Freedom Curriculum, so there's 12 weeks of that. Um, there's some homework at home, it's about an hour a week, um, and then we come together on Tuesday nights to talk through that um, as a group. And so Freedom is called Freedom because it's designed to help a believer live the full life that God has for right, them. Right, right. And go ahead. No, 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 please. Uh, so sometimes what happens is, is that as believers, you're free. You're going to heaven like your soul is free. But sometimes that freedom that is the reality spiritually doesn't make its way into your everyday life. So freedom is designed to help you know more about God. That's why there's curriculum. To understand some of the ways he works and to kind of tap on the door of, of what sometimes can be some hard stuff. So it's not counseling. You're not going to be revealing secrets. You don't even really have to talk if you don't want to. Uh, you can just engage the, the material. And then as you do that, our prayer is, is that the worship, the community, what happens together opens your heart to receive more than to give out. You receive more of what God has. And then when that, those doors get opened, that's a good metaphor for what freedom looks like. The doors open and you kind of walk out different and changed. Right. So if somebody was skeptical today, what would you say to the skeptic in the room? Is like, maybe, but it sounds complicated. I'm not sure. And it sounds kind of touchy-feely too. So what would you say to them? So this is what I would say. So we had a lot of women who wanted to do freedom at first. And they brought their husbands with them. Let's just say it that way. And, um, and I would ask them all, you know, when we first start, tell me one word that describes how you feel about being in freedom. And a lot of the women were like, excited, expect it. And the guys were like, weirded out, don't know, not sure, <laughs> and those kinds of things. And then afterwards, I asked the same questions. And the men were the ones that stood up and said, my life has changed. I'm free. I'm, I'm at peace. I'm healed. The words coming out of the men were even more powerful yeah. than the ones coming out of the women. It's not touchy-feely. Um, I just think it's fantastic. It's really... Um, all of us have stuff that holds us back from that full abundant joy that God wants for us, all of us. For some of us, it's fear or shame or guilt or forgiveness or toxic relationships, anything. And a lot of the stuff we talk through freedom, you don't even realize you're being held back by it until you engage it. Um, and then you realize you are. And the thing is, God can bring you that healing that only he can bring. And so people come out of this just completely you know, I know it's free is a weird word, but it's true. Yeah. So you have, you have a story. I do. I do. So last semester, um, we had a couple come through Freedom, Josh and Rhonda Moore. Josh serves um, up here on our band, um, and uh, Rhonda is his wife, and they're amazing. But they came to Freedom, and I had asked her the first two semesters about it, and she said both times, I know, I don't know. So she wrote, the, or the first semester, so she wrote this email to me to explain her thoughts, and I thought this is the best way for you to kind of hear from her. So I'm just going to read it because it's beautiful. And it made everyone in our office cry. So there you go. It says, uh, the, the spring semester of freedom class was life-changing for me. I had been struggling off and on for a few years. I was weighed down, depressed at times, anxious at others, and I was just unhappy. There was no reason for me to feel the way I did, but yet it was there. I felt like something inside me had been flipped off. No matter what I tried, I couldn't shake it. For the first time freedom was offered, I thought I should do it at some point, but I didn't. When it came up in the spring, I knew I had to do it. About two weeks before the class started, I remembering during worship, I just told God I really missed him. 
Nothing changed, and the first week of freedom came and went. I was still expectant. I just knew something was going to change. Week two, you shared something that really hit home. I'm not even sure what it was, but it started to unlock something. And then during worship, God finished ripping down those walls. I felt a peace wash over me. I was literally crying. I was so excited. I got my peace and my joy back. From there, each week at group, and then on Sunday mornings, God revealed things I needed to hear and sometimes things I needed to let go of. Some of them I didn't even realize were there. I went in with an open mind, and I asked God to change me and shape me. I am a better wife, mother, and daughter because of this group. Having freedom from my past has been life-changing, and it's like I can breathe for the first time in a long time. The burdens I carried are no longer mine to carry. The weight is gone, and it's the best feeling in the world. Before freedom, I couldn't even sit alone at church without coming close to panic attacks. Now I'm so thankful for freedom and that I can see myself the way God sees me. That doesn't mean that every day is perfect, but it's so much easier to come back around. That's pretty incredible. Cool? Uh, hey, I'd like to do a quick experiment. If you're in the room and you have taken freedom, would you just put your hand up and hold up for like five seconds? Would you do that? Look around you. These are all the weirdos who took freedom. Yeah. Uh, I'm kidding. Put your hand down for a second. Now, if you took freedom and you would recommend it to folks in the room who are following Jesus as kind of a, a way for them to re-engage or to deeply engage God, would you just raise your hand one more time? All right. So there you go. There, there's your witness. So the last thing I want to say about freedom is um, I, I went through freedom with my wife, with my small group uh, in our last session as well, and went down to the retreat in Alabama. And I went largely to be supportive and uh, engaged. I, I never want to come to the Word of God with a careless attitude, or I don't really need that attitude. So I decided I'm going to engage 100%, but I didn't really come thinking this is really for me, right? So I just came willing. And I will tell you, I was blown away at the number of topics that we discussed that I would think, oh, there might be something in that for me. And if I press in a little bit here, and then when we would do our prayer times, um, it was really powerful for me to kind of dig down a little bit deeper. So maybe you think, you know, hey, I don't know, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, maybe you want to consider this. Um, but what I'd, what I'd love to encourage everybody to do is to simply think and pray about it. And today, you're going to have a chance to just take next step E on your Connect card. Uh, you can wait till later. I'll remind you of that. But just next step E, just check it. And that will give you all the information in your inbox on how to sign up as well. And then the final thing, Melissa, if, if somebody was holding out, even after all that, if somebody was holding out saying, I don't know if freedom is for me, what would you say? I'd say if you're feeling even the least bit stirred about it right now, that's the Holy Spirit, and you need to do it. Good for you. Hey, thanks for your leadership. You're you guys welcome. are killing it. Appreciate welcome. you and your team. Give it up for Melissa. She's a great leader around here. <clears throat> well, we're beginning a brand new series today. We're calling it Wind and Fire, and I want to talk with you for four weeks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And I, and I got I to warn you here. Um, there are a few things in the life of a church that get me more excited and a little bit more cautious than talking about the Holy Spirit. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one reason is, is that the Holy Spirit is less to be talked about and more to be experienced, all right? Uh, the Holy Spirit wasn't given to us simply as a set of doctrines to know. It was actually given to us as God himself living with us, living within us, to be experienced in our everyday life. So there's both material to know and understand. There's doctrine to learn. We're going to do some of that over the next four weeks. But there's also this experiential piece of walking with God. That's the language that's used. Walking with God. Walking in Christ. There's, there's this thing that needs to happen in the life of a believer. And, and it's available to us, but not every believer steps all the way into that. 
That's just the reality. And so constantly in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, when he writes about the Holy Spirit, he doesn't say, here's the 15 things to know about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't do that at all. There's no systematic theology of the Holy Spirit presented in the Apostle Paul at all. But what he consistently does is he tells the believers he's writing to, Christians now, he's constantly saying to them, be filled with the Spirit. Be refilled with the Spirit. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. And so there's this thing where we need to learn and know some stuff, but there's this experiential piece. And the challenge for a speaker is it's really easy to talk about this side of the equation. What do you need to know about the Holy Spirit? I, I, we're going to do a lot of that. And I'm a teacher. One of my giftings is teaching. I've done some teaching. I was a high school teacher. And as you know, if you're a regular attendant around here, I love the time we have together in teaching. I stretch that time that we have together in teaching. In the last two weeks when Pastor Will and Pastor Joseph did a phenomenal job, by the way, both of them preaching, I was like, so thrilled for them to preach and so glad to be now back up here preaching. I mean, it's just part of it because I can talk a lot about the content of what to know, but that's not the purpose of this message series. And we're going to do that. I'm going to do that well. We're going to dive into the Bible on a level that some of you haven't done in a long time over the next four weeks, but that's not the point. We're learning so that we are more open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Very different goal. Now, learning can open our receptivity. Learning can tear down ignorance. Learning can make somebody willing. Learning can bring light to the areas that don't have a lot of light in them. So there's a lot of good things that learning does, but learning about the Holy Spirit is not the goal. The goal is experiencing all that God has and pressing into why Paul keeps telling believers to be filled with the Spirit. And that's one reason why I'm a little cautious today and just a little, just a little anxious about it. The, the other reason is, is that God gave the gift of the Holy Spirit to produce unity in the body of Christ. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that one of the things Christians love to fight about is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Isn't that funny? God gave us the Holy Spirit to bring unity, and Christians fight about the Holy Spirit an awful lot. I, I, that's, by the way, that's not coincidence. That's exactly the way the enemy likes to work. The enemy of your soul, the devil, Satan, the great liar, the, the father of lies, the deceiver. And what he loves to do is he likes to take God's greatest gifts and twist them so that the very thing they're supposed to do in your life and bring to your life and make happen for you, all that God wants, they get twisted and turned so it doesn't happen. One of the greatest gifts God's ever given to this world is the gift of the family, the family unit. And nothing has been under a consistent attack more than the family unit. I bet some of that's happened in your life. I bet your family wasn't perfect. I bet there were some imperfections that showed up and probably had some lingering effect on you. So God gives the gift of the family and the enemy attacks the family because in the family so many good things can happen. And to prevent that, the enemy of your soul gets in there and confuses and brings destruction and selfishness and all the things that are not the work of God. And when they materialize, man, it produces all kinds of chaos and pain. And the same kind of thing happens with the doctrines of the Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of disunity. And it divides, and people get very emotional about this topic. So, so I have a word of, of advice for you. I am not in any one message over the next four weeks going to give you all that you need to know about the Holy Spirit or all that you need to know about a piece of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to happen. I, I don't have the time to do that. I don't have the skill to do that in the time that it's allotted. But over four weeks, uh, I'm going to be very balanced. Uh, I'm going to be very, very biblical. And we're going to push some envelopes. 
Probably some that if you've been around church for a while, you'll be like, yeah, go, Ben. And others, you might be going, whoa, slow down, Ben. And that, that, that's okay. But here, here's the agreement I'd like to have with you is I'd like for you to give me four weeks, four weeks before you make up your mind about me and what we're doing here and what you think. Give me four weeks. Today, I'm going to be talking more on the information side. But over the next few weeks, I, I, I have to, to be true to what the Lord wants to do through the teaching of Scripture, I have to also press in on the fact that if this just stays in your head, you've missed it. And that's the problem, honestly, with a lot of stuff that happens with the Holy Spirit. It kind of stays in the head. And it needs to be in your head. Let's be clear. I mean, wrong doctrine on the Holy Spirit creates all kinds of chaos. So it needs to be in your head. It needs to be put in your head in an organized way. And the Bible talks about it so that we can know about it. So knowing and understanding is a big deal. But knowing and understanding is not the end goal. So some people in this room, you're very comfortable talking scripture and talking theology. And you can talk a lot of us under the table. I've known a lot of folks like that in my life. I've been fortunate to go to some incredible schools. Here's some incredible people with incredible knowledge. But the people who had the best knowledge that were the most effective understood something that is missing for a lot of Christians. That knowledge was never the goal. In fact, knowledge can puff up, the Bible says. Knowledge can make you walk around with your chest swole. Like you got it together and man, you can be impressive. But that's never been the goal with the things of God. The knowledge was meant to soften the heart, not simply fill the head. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, I pray you get some information and it opens doors to understanding and God fills your mind that God's people would think about these things. But I pray also that it would fill your heart and you would know what it is to be filled and walk with the Spirit. This thing that Paul keeps saying over and over and over again in his writings. So when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, I have to take you back in your Bible um, I have to take you back to the book of Leviticus. It won't be on your screen. There's a story about Leviticus number uh, 11, chapter 11. Moses, remember Moses? Some of you have been around church for a while. Mo Moses is struggling. He can't lead the people. There's too many people, and they keep coming to him with problems. So his father-in-law, Jethro, says to him, Moses, you need to appoint elders to sit down, 70 of them, and let's divide this crowd, and they'll handle the management of the stuff, and the stuff they can't do, it'll filter up to you. So it'll be your vision, you'll push down, but they'll manage a lot of stuff on the ground. And Moses is like, I, I don't know, I've been doing all this. And, and Jethro says, but you're not doing it well, it's too big for you. So Moses does, he, he appoints 70 elders, and then the Bible says this interesting thing in Numbers chapter 11. That the spirit that was on Moses, God deposited the same spirit on each of the 70 elders. And when he did that, the 70 elders, like Moses, began to prophesy. Now, the word prophesy means to speak the word of God with boldness. Sometimes it might be speak the word of God about future things. But most of the time, it's speak the word of God with clarity about a present situation. And these elders begin to prophesy just like Moses had. And then Joshua, Moses is like number two, dude. Joshua looks at that and says, Moses, these guys, they're prophesying like you. And, jo and Moses says to Joshua, are, are you jealous for me? Like, like, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for being jealous for me. But you don't need to be jealous for me. He says, in fact, I wish that God would pour out his spirit on everybody 
And everybody would prophesy. That's what Moses says. And it's recorded for you right there in Numbers chapter 11. You can look it up. Right? Now, it's interesting. A few hundred years later, there's a prophet by the name of Joel. Joel is a prophet a few hundred years before Jesus, and he picks up on Moses' words. When Moses said, I wish that everybody would prophesy. And Joel, talking about the time when the Messiah would come and the impact of the coming of Jesus on the world, says that when Jesus comes, one of the things he's going to open the door to is the full work of the Spirit. The full work of the Spirit. I'm a little bit out of order here, but in Joel chapter 2, maybe the guys will get up on the screen, but you can write the note down. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Here's what Joel says. And afterward, after the Messiah comes, look at this. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. So he's hearkening back to Moses' words. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So when God's work is fully ramping up, Messiah has come, and all that God wants to do in the world, Jesus has come, one of the proofs is going to be that the spirit of God that used to occasionally touch people the Spirit of God is actually going, excuse me, going to touch everybody, all the family of God, not just the 70 elders, not just Moses, not just a few people here and there, but everybody's going to have an opportunity to experience the Spirit of God. When I talk about the Holy Spirit, I don't know what comes to your mind. So without doing it, just walk through with me this, this kind of mental exercise. For, just imagine, imagine you're saying to your young kid, you're trying to teach them about the things of God. It's your grandkid, it's your, it's your niece, it's your nephew. And, and you try to say to them, I want you to picture God the Father. I don't know what you picture, but he's typically, for me at least, got kind of white hair and sits on a big throne. It kind of looks like Zeus. I mean, it's horrible theology, but it's kind of what I imagine, right? God doesn't have a form. I borrowed from my, you know, Greek history. There. I, don't, I don't know. But now when I say, imagine what Jesus is like, looks like, it's a whole lot easier because we've seen depictions of Jesus, right? And most of them are probably wrong, but that's what I go to in my mind. Jesus looks like a pretty handsome looking dude, a little soft perhaps. Sometimes other depictions, he's a little, you know, tougher Jesus. I like those Jesus better. But I, know, I can picture him better because he was a human. I have stories about his human interaction. But you know the one that's the most fuzzy? Picture the Holy Spirit. You know what comes to my mind? Casper the Friendly Ghost. That's what comes to my mind. Because I know he's not a bad spirit, but sometimes he's called the Holy Ghost. Right? So I think of Casper. None of that's right. In fact, when you talk about the things of the Spirit, John chapter 3, John chapter 3 verse 8, talks about the things of the Spirit this way. And it's important for our conversation. Jesus is talking and he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everybody born of the Spirit. Spirit things are like wind things. You can only see the wind, but you see the effect of the wind. We're standing in my yard yesterday looking at my dying grass, remembering the days before when I was thinking, man, I wish it would quit raining, and now I'm thinking, man, I wish it would rain. And the wind would blow just a little bit, and the trees would... I didn't see the wind, but I saw the effect of the wind on my trees, right? Now, there's a historic picture of the Trinity. I have a graphic for you up here on the screen. Um, when we talk about the Trinity, the fact that God is in three persons, this is a basic Christian doctrine. 
We talk about the Father, who is God. You see that connection? We talk about the Son, who is God. They are not the same being. And then we also talk about the Holy Spirit, who is also God. So this is a third separate, it's, it's not an it, although I might refer to it that way because I don't really, you know, have gender specificity here, but it's really more of a he, it's more of a person. Now the Father is not the Son, it's not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, it's not the Father, the, the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and I think I did all the way around the, the triangle there, but that is an illustration trying to describe for us that all these things together are God, they are all fully God. And so when Joel talked about bringing up Moses' words that there would come a day, it shouldn't surprise you that when Jesus shows up, he refers to this time. In John chapter 16, Jesus talks about the time when the Spirit would come. Look at what he says. He says, but very truly I tell you, it is good for you that I'm going away. Jesus says to his disciples, it's actually good that I'm going to disappear. Unless I go away, the advocate, that's one of the names of the Spirit. There are many names. Jesus is Jesus. He's the Son. He's the Messiah. He's the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. All these names of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has multiple names. He's the advocate. If I don't go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus says one of the most strange things in the world. Hey, disciples, it's good that I go away. i got to be honest with you. That makes very little sense to me until I understand more deeply the Holy Spirit. How is it good for Jesus to not be walking with the 12 disciples, to be there so that if they have a question, they just say, hey, Jesus, would you explain this to us? Which they did a lot of times. To watch him do those miracles, wow. But Jesus looked at them and says, I need to go away. It's actually good for you that I do. Because when I go away, the spirit, the advocate, it's an interesting title. Advocate, the one who works on your behalf. The advocate will come. And when he comes, the whole world is going to be, Jesus goes at it from the negative perspective, going to be proven wrong in their perspective about righteousness, about sin, about judgment, about all this stuff. The Holy Spirit's going to bring truth and correction. He's going to advocate for the work of God in the world. So, Joel talked about it, Moses talked about it, Jesus talked about it, and some of the last words of Jesus that we have recorded for us in the Bible in Acts chapter 1. And look, look what the Bible says here, Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. So he's already been crucified, he's already been resurrected, he's meeting with his disciples. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wow. So Moses talked about it. Joel talked about it. Jesus clearly talked about it. It's good for me to go away. And I want you to go and get the thing I have for you. You wait. Don't you leave until you get what the Lord has for you. And a little bit later on, Paul, who comes after all these events... Paul writes an interesting phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, here's what Paul says. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Now, that's some of the language from Joel. Sons and daughters, slave and free. This is where the spirit moves. There's no boundary Right? There's no socioeconomic class. There's no good and bad. 
all the family of God has access. If we were all baptized by one spirit and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So what happened between Jesus saying it's coming and then Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 saying it happened, we all got it. I want to take you to a place in your Bible. If you have it, you can go there. This is the place that is the seminal moment in talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's Acts chapter 2, not on the screen. I wanted to read it to you. Here's the amazing event between Acts chapter 1, wait for the promise of the Father, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the promise came and you were all baptized in it. Here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, so they were obeying the Lord. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, the multitudes came together and they were bewildered because each one hearing them speak was hearing him speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? That's like saying, isn't everybody from Hamilton? That's kind of what that's like right there. They were surprised that people from Galilee could speak with such fluency in other languages. These were hick people. They didn't know other languages. They only knew Aramaic. But here they are speaking in other languages. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthian and Mede and Elamite and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phryga. And, and you can go on and on with all the different words that are hard to pronounce. So what happened was, wind blew, ah, Jesus, things of the Spirit, wind. The wind is, a, is, an, is a, a metaphor, it's a visual representation of the work of the Spirit. The wind blows, it shakes the house like, like a small earthquake. It gets the attention, not just people on the inside, so it's not just psychosomatic and group think. People on the outside who are not even part of the experience see it coming, and they come and they pay attention. And then tongues of fire, which is interesting language. It's like little flames sit on the head of each person. Fire is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, wind and fire. And then they speak. They speak. And when they speak, the word of God is proclaimed with boldness and clarity in the language of the people who had gathered in Jerusalem. And they heard them preach Another biblical word for preach is prophesy. They heard them prophesy about Jesus and his work. This was the initial coming of the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. And these disciples who had been following Jesus, they obeyed Jesus, they waited, and then God gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit in a different way than he had ever been had before. Because in the Old Testament and up until the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came on at various times for specific purposes, but he never indwelt anyone permanently. But after Acts chapter 2, every follower of Jesus gets a deposit, a permanent deposit of the Holy Spirit into their lives. This is radically different. So when Moses said, I wish everybody could prophesy. And Joel said, there's coming a day when sons and daughters will prophesy. And old men will dream dreams. By the way, old men, me included, 
We're not too old to dream about the things of God. Part of the free flow of the work of the Spirit in your life is, is that as long as you're breathing, you're not too old to anticipate and look forward to and give yourself to the work of God in this world. Nothing to me is sadder than a person who's lived their entire life in church, but the wind of the Spirit is not blowing in their life. And so in their older ages, where they should have built up a reservoir of confidence in the things of God, what they have instead is dry dust. Old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Not too young to start thinking about the way God would like to use you. Your sons and your daughters, ladies, that was powerful because women were not really allowed to talk. But when the Spirit moves, the Spirit will blow not just in men, but He'll blow in women as well. And here it is, Acts chapter 2, and it's happened. And there are physical manifestations of the Spirit. There are internal manifestations of the Spirit, things that are obvious to be seen and things that are not obvious to be seen. And this changes everything. For instance, the Apostle Peter, he's putting his foot in his mouth all the time. He speaks up. He's a cursing sailor. He curses that a little girl. I don't even know Jesus. Don't even know anything about I've never even heard of this Jesus. And he says some choice words at her. This is Peter after three years of following Jesus. But after Acts chapter 2, you find Peter standing up in front of a crowd, and he says just the opposite. Hey, this Jesus, I know him. And let me tell you something about this Jesus. You guys killed him. His blood is on your hands. So the guy who was afraid is now standing boldly in front of people. But the reason he came, Peter says, is so that you might be saved. So repent, every one of you, he says. Repent. Admit that you're a sinner. And the Bible says 3,000 people in that day gave their lives to Christ. What was the difference between Peter then and Peter then? The difference was the full work of the Holy Spirit being made manifest in his life. Pretty potent stuff. So the Apostle Paul knows about this story of the day of Pentecost. And when he writes letters to churches, he's constantly telling them, here's my heart for you. Be filled with the Spirit. He's writing to believers. Be filled. Keep being filled with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. It's pretty potent stuff. And I just want to suggest to you, without being too theologically deep, although we're going to do that, that if the Apostle Paul would tell believers in the first century church to be filled with the Spirit because they needed it, I just want to suggest that you and I are not superlative to them. We probably need it too. In fact, some of the greatest giants in Christian history had a profound sense of their need to be filled with God's Spirit before they could do anything important. So the little song that we sung just a few moments ago that says, if you're not in it, I don't want it. Yeah, again, that comes from Moses. God, if you don't go with us, I don't want to go to the promised land. That's the attitude that brings receptivity, opens the door for the work of the Spirit. God, I cannot do what you called me to do unless you empower me to do what you called me to do. God, I can't be a husband like you called me to be unless your Spirit is going with me. That's the right theology. That's the right doctrine. 
I can't do what you've called me to do if your spirit doesn't empower me. I don't have it in me. I can't be the kind of dad you've called me to be unless your spirit is leading me. I certainly can't be the kind of pastor you've called me to be unless your spirit is leading and guiding and directing. That is the right kind of doctrine and head knowledge that if you get it right, it begins to open the doors of the heart. But the truth is, the enemy of our soul has convinced many of us to live a life where the active presence of the Spirit of God is not obvious to us. And it's not obvious that we need it. We can go about our day without ever really praying and calling on the Lord. In fact, we only call on the Lord in moments when we must. As if prayer is a last resort. A guy I used to work on staff with at a church previously we would say something, something would come up to be a conversation, somebody would be going through and we'd say, hey, we should pray about that. And he would say, oh, Lord, has it come to that? The idea that if you have to pray about it, it's really bad. But that's the wrong theology. The, the right theology is this. I have, as a child of God, the very presence of God in me. The Holy Spirit is a deposit of the work of God in me. What that means is, is that my daily walk with the Lord, every step that I take, can be and should be infused, informed, empowered by the Spirit of God. This is not high and lofty teaching that makes a Christian feel less than. It's not the intent at all. It is supposed to build in you a hunger and a desire not to make you feel less than, but, but to show you just how special you are, that God would, when he walked away from this earth and went to heaven in the form of the sun, when the sun leaves, he leaves for us God's full presence that isn't bound by time or space, but can indwell every one of us at the same time. Now, there are two major ways to limit the work of the Holy Spirit. One is for people to come to this topic and say the Spirit can't do it that way. You read the book of Acts, you hear about people's experience, and people say the Spirit can't work that way. But the Spirit will work as the Spirit wants to work. Now, he will always work in, in cooperation and in the guidelines of Scripture. That's how we understand the work of the Spirit. But he can do much more than most of us will allow. If it's in Scripture, if it's not anti-Scripture, the Spirit can do what he wants. The other way we limit the work of the Spirit is we say... Uh, this is exactly how it must work. It must look exactly like this. And that's not the way the things of the Spirit work. Some get these giftings. Some are operated in this way. Some are... Op no, it's all, con it's all ultimately sculpted and directed by the teaching of Scripture. The Spirit doesn't work outside of Scripture. They work in tandem. The Word and the Spirit together... So I want to show you four ways the Spirit works in all disciples as we kind of do our foundational talk today to what's your appetite. So when the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit was deposited, every believer has the next four things I'm going to talk about present in them. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, if you're a believer, this is you. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. Regenerates us. In John 3, 3, the word for regenerate is used in a slightly different way. It's, it's interpreted slightly differently, and it brings some understanding. Jesus replied to the people who are talking to him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The word regenerate literally can be translated born again. 
So what the Spirit does is he takes a person who is dead in sin, who's lost, and he brings them to new life, spiritually speaking. That's what happens. That's called regeneration. This is the work of the Spirit. So if you've given your life to Jesus, the Spirit comes in, takes residence, and regenerates you. In Titus chapter 3, but when the kingdom and, the, and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth, there it is again, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So before I came to Christ, I was spiritually dead, but now I'm spiritually alive. And this is in keeping with the work of the Spirit. In John 6, 63, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. That's Jesus talking. And when regeneration happens, it's often not emotional. God doesn't have to be showy to be powerful. Regeneration happens whether you feel it or not, because that's the work of the Spirit. You are made alive in Christ. Number two, the Holy Spirit baptizes us, and this is where confusion enters in. You know how in the English language we use the same word and it has multiple levels of meaning? The same thing happens in your Bible. So context in the Bible, the, uh, the context of the language used helps us understand its more complete meaning. In English, I might say, I love my wife. I might say, I love pizza. Completely qualitatively different things, right? Of course. In the Bible, the word baptism is used in a lot of senses. The word baptism is used to describe the event when people are taken underwater. They are baptized in water. That's its original sense. But that act of being completely consumed, covered over by water, metaphorically is used here in that we are baptized, consumed, overwhelmed with, filled up, covered with the Spirit. And when somebody gives his life to Jesus, the Apostle Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, that every believer is baptized into the family of God. That's why we say to you, when you give your life to Christ, get baptized in water, because it illustrates the fact that you are now fully into the family of God. You're dead to self, you're raised to new life in Christ. Dead to self, raised to new life in Christ. And as the water has covered over you, you are fully submerged in the, in the family of God. And into the work of the Spirit in your life. It's a baptism that happens to every believer. And yet Luke seems to indicate that there's another potential use of the word baptism. That it's not just the initial regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. But there are moments when believers get kind of, if you allow this language, rebaptized. Paul would say, I don't really like that language because he doesn't use it anywhere. Paul would say they get filled. And so here we have the complexity of language in the Bible that has added to incredible confusion. But for our purposes today, I'm going to clean all that up in the next couple of weeks, by the way, so you need to be here. Don't quote me all the way and expect that I've told you everything I know. I don't yet, all right? Send your emails. My name is Joseph, joseph at fourcornerschurch.com. All right, so... <clears throat> So what happens is, is we get regenerated, we get baptized, but the Lord also fills us. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the placing of the believer into the body of Christ and actually into Christ himself. This is what Paul meant when he looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. This happened at your regeneration when you became a Christian. 
The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event that occurs at the moment of salvation, but I'm going to use Paul's words here for clarity. There may be many fillings, but only one baptism. Now, people use this word interchangeably. Again, we'll get to that a little bit later. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a universal experience for all believers. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. You have him fully. And at the same time, Paul looks at you and says, now be filled with the Spirit. This is the challenge of words that we use to try to describe deeper things that are hard to measure. You're full of the Spirit of God, but Paul would say, be filled with the Spirit. I don't know how to make full sense of that. All I know how to do is press into it and try to understand what they mean and let what I'm discovering open my heart to whatever God has. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Number three, the Holy Spirit indwells me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is, look at this phrase, in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with the price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So he's in you. He's not just coming upon you. He's not just around you in the air. He's actually inside of you, leading, guiding, and directing. And number four, the Holy Spirit seals me. In the uh, New Testament world, People of influence had a signet ring, and when they would send a correspondence, they would take wax, they would melt it over the letter, and they would fold it and put the, the melted wax on the, on the folded piece of the letter right where the fold met. Then they would take their signet ring, and they would press it into the warm wax, and they would leave their seal upon it. And as long as the seal was unbroken, you knew that, that the contents of that letter were safe. So Paul grabs from that imagery, and he says, the Holy Spirit has sealed you. You are protected. You are safe. You're identified by the one who sealed you. This is God himself who does this work in you. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then again in Ephesians chapter 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believe, you are marked in him. That's the language of sealed. You are marked in him with the seal, the, promise, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are called God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit comes in you, you're sealed, and it's like a down payment, like on a house. You put a down payment on, but over time, you're going to keep paying you gave a deposit, but you're going to keep paying because the work is done. It's your house, but it's going to keep being paid for. This is the work of the Spirit. It's a deposit in you, proof that God's going to keep investing in you over time. That's why Paul puts up the language and he says, you got it, now get more of it. And this whole message series for the next few weeks is designed that we would all press in and get more of the Spirit of God. And maybe we'll make sense of some of the language of Scripture between baptisms and fillings and giftings and all that. And I'm going to talk about the more sensational gifts and the less sensational gifts. But at the end of the day, what I want for you is I want you to learn some stuff so that your heart would be open. And I don't know any better way to do that than to take what we've heard and try to turn some of it into action and to close our time with prayer. So would you grab out your Connect cards and let's take a couple steps together as a congregation. <clears throat> Next step A, 
says, uh, today I want Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. All the work of the Holy Spirit I've been talking about is only present in the believer. So if you're not yet a believer, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the Bible says the work of the Holy Spirit for you is to convince you that you need a Savior. To convince you that you are dead in sin but can be made alive in Christ. I can't do that. I'm not compelling enough. But the Holy Spirit does that regularly in this room. People hear a message just like this, and they decide to take that pen, check next step A that says, today, I want Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. So if you're feeling compelled that way, check the box. And when you do that, know this. Here's what you're saying. God, I know I cannot save myself, so I trust the work that Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection to save me. I trust in that alone. We use this tool of the Connect card, ask you to put it in the offering bucket when it comes by in a moment, but we're going to bow our heads as well. I'm going to ask you to do some business with God. God, save me. Wash away my sins. Let the work of Jesus be applied to my life. I want all that you have for me. I want to follow you. Or next step B, I want to be baptized. What we're talking about here is baptism in water. We're going to do this on August 11th or October 13th. And so if either one of these dates works for you, if you have given your life to Christ, but you haven't gone through the symbolic indication that you are dead to sin and alive in Christ and a part of the family of God and bathed with the Holy Spirit. If you haven't done that, this is your opportunity to get your questions answered or to sign up, check the box. That's how you start the process. And next step C might be the boldest prayer you've prayed in a long time. It's the one I'm praying every morning. I'm going to invite you to pray it with me. It says, Father, you have baptized me in your spirit. Now fill me with all you have for me. Let the overflow spill into every area of my life. All right, God, if I'm in you, If I have you, I want all of you. If Paul says to be filled, I want to be filled. I want one part of my life left untouched by you. Next step, D. Who would like to attend Grow? Number three, Grow is our four-step experience, four experiences, four steps towards uh, development and discipleship. So Grow 3 talks about discovering the way God has wired you. And design you, and it actually talks about the work of the Spirit and how it's supposed to be expressed in your life and out. And it helps you. It's really all about you. We want you to know you and the way God has wired you. And these tools that we bring to you in Grow Chapter 3 helps you do that. We'll feed you a meal, and um, you'll meet some folks. It'll take a couple hours of your time. But check the box. We'll send you the information and a link, and you can sign up. Um, but you get the information by checking the box. And the next step, E, we already referred to. It says, would you send me more info so I can sign up for the fall semester of freedom? If you have more questions, Melissa will be right outside these doors to the right at the Meet the Pastor area where I'll be as well. And she'll be glad to answer and some of her team some of the questions you might have about the freedom experience. We want you to have all that God wants for you. Now you can set that card aside for just a moment. And for folks who call this church home, it's your opportunity to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. The reason there are people standing is they're coming to receive your tithe and offering that you freely give. So in the last couple of weeks, I sent all the givers in our church a letter, and um, here's what I said to you, that we don't have a bunch of fat cats paying the bills. The government doesn't give us any checks. We're not England. We don't get stipends from the government to pay for church. Uh, we, we don't have a big bank account somewhere where people have funded with all their inheritances, none, none of that. Our church is 100% funded because people like you think that what we do here is worthwhile that what God allows us to be a part of is worthwhile. So they give. And they give their hard-earned money to pay for very silly things, it seems to me, like pens and paper. But it's interesting, that's the very pen that people will use to take their next step, next step A. So far this year, 
30 adults plus have made a first time decision to follow Jesus. And they used the little instrument that you paid for, a pen, to record that so that we could follow up with them. We pay for much more serious things like toilet paper, very important stuff. Theologically rich toilet paper. All right, we pay for air conditioning, kids' curriculum. It sounds silly, right, that God would take pennies and dollars and do profound, eternal work with them. But he does. And this week, I was reminded not only of your financial generosity, but of your emotional generosity as you loved our family. Just thank you. Thank you for believing in the work of God in this church. Thank you for being a good church. Thank you for getting it. It means the world to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your spirit. God, I just want to boldly ask that you would fill us all the way. Wherever we're empty, fill us up. Wherever we have leaked, fill us up. Wherever we've been hidden from you, fill us up, God, overflowing. And let the overflow of your spirit's work in our life spill onto every area. God, let the work of your spirit in my life touch my family. Let it touch my engagement with this church. Let it spill over onto my neighbors. Let it impact my work week. God, fullness of your spirit, we beg it, Lord. God, I pray over the next few weeks that you would illuminate our minds, but I pray also that you would open our hearts, that we would not just get head knowledge, but God, we would experience all that you have for us. Lord, I pray right now, for the men and women that are declaring, Jesus, save me. Wash away my sins. Cover me by your shed blood. I want to follow you with my life. Can't save myself. I trust you, Jesus. I trust in you alone to save me. And Father, would you take our next steps in our offering? And would you do your deep work in us through them as we're obedient to you to walk them out? to give you back a portion of what you blessed us with, to follow the leading of your spirit and move forward in what we've heard. Make it go far and wide. And Father, I pray for anybody that's listening that doesn't yet feel that they are a part of your family, that you would remind them that the work of the Holy Spirit has sealed them and that they would experience in this church what it is to be a part of a family. We pray it all in the strong and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen.